Welcome to the Audio Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Michael Roy with highlights for the month of October 2007. Please note that the full text of all articles, including all author affiliations and disclosure statements, may be viewed online at ajp.psychiatryonline.org. This month, we'll begin with our treatment in psychiatry feature, where Daniel Weintraub and Howard Hertig discuss presentation and management of psychosis in Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies. Then we'll turn to research by Patricia Dietz and colleagues on maternal depression before, during, and after pregnancy. This will be followed by two different perspectives on depression and suicide. The first report is by Matthew Keller and colleagues who discussed the association of different adverse life events with distinct patterns of depressive symptoms. The other article is by Gonzalo Laje and colleagues, and it presents another analysis from the STAR-D study, genetic markers of suicidal ideation emerging during citalopram treatment of major depression. Then we'll turn to the treatment of bipolar disorder in adolescence. Mauricio Towen and colleagues present results from their comparison of olanzapine versus placebo in the treatment of adolescents with bipolar mania. We'll also highlight an editorial by John McClellan on the significance of the Towen study. We'll conclude with an article on psychodynamic treatment. Sidney Blatt and colleagues discuss two primary configurations of psychopathology and change in thought disorder in long-term intensive inpatient treatment of seriously disturbed young adults. An editorial by John Oldham on psychodynamic psychotherapy for personality disorders will also be highlighted. Let's begin with the treatment and psychiatry feature, presentation and management of psychosis in Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies. It begins with a hypothetical case report. A 73-year-old man with Parkinson's disease is referred for psychiatric evaluation of confusion along with visual hallucinations of strangers in his house. Treatment of the early Parkinson's symptoms began with a dopamine agonist, and L-DOPA was added later to combat worsening symptoms. A more detailed history elicits new-onset depression and vivid dreaming with insomnia. One treatment option is to lower the dosages of anti-Parkinsonian medications, which can cause or aggravate visual hallucinations and confusion. Another would be to add quetiapine, the atypical antipsychotic drug that is least likely to worsen the Parkinsonism. After discussions with the patient and his wife, the decision is made to initiate quetiapine at a dose of 50 milligrams at bedtime and not to change the anti-Parkinsonian medications. However, after only a few doses, the patient stops taking the quetiapine because of excessive sedation and increased confusion. An attempt is then made to slowly taper the dopamine agonist, which is more likely than L-DOPA, to cause psychiatric complications and is less effective as an anti-Parkinsonian medication. The patient's Parkinsonism worsens, however, so the dosage is restored to the previous level. The patient's condition continues to deteriorate because of increasing confusion, disturbed sleep, and visual hallucinations, which are now accompanied by persecutory delusions regarding strangers in the house. Over the long term, dementia affects up to 75% of patients with Parkinson's disease. On the other hand, dementia with Lewy bodies may be indistinguishable from Parkinson's disease neuropathologically, and it has similar clinical features. Recurrent visual hallucinations are a core feature of dementia with Lewy bodies. In patients with Parkinson's disease, dopamine replacement therapy likely plays a role in psychosis, but the etiology appears to be multifactorial. The neuropathology of both Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies induces impairments in the monoaminergic and cholinergic neural circuitry. This helps explain the high prevalence of psychosis in these disorders. 
Appropriate management of psychosis should begin with an evaluation of existing anti-Parkinsonian medications and withdrawal of offending agents. Clozapine is the only antipsychotic shown to be efficacious for the treatment of psychosis in Parkinson's disease, although quetiapine is more frequently used because of convenience. Sensitivity to antipsychotics is characteristic of dementia with Lewy bodies and may prevent antipsychotics from being tested further in this population. There is preliminary evidence that cholinesterase inhibitors may have antipsychotic properties, both in Parkinson's disease with dementia and in dementia with Lewy bodies. Patients should be treated with an atypical antipsychotic only if the symptoms are problematic, after acute medical conditions have been ruled out, and after the anti-Parkinsonian medications have been reviewed. It is important to monitor for worsening Parkinsonism whenever the antipsychotic dosage is increased. Clozapine is best reserved for patients who do not tolerate or respond to quetiapine because of the legal requirement for frequent blood testing to monitor for agranulocytosis. Although cholinesterase inhibitors cannot currently be considered a first-line treatment for psychosis in Parkinson's disease, they may have antipsychotic effects for these patients, and their mild cognition-enhancing properties are likely to benefit the large percentage of psychotic patients with comorbid cognitive impairment or dementia. The cholinesterase inhibitors are the only class of psychiatric medications that have been evaluated in randomized clinical trials for the treatment of dementia with Lewy bodies. They appear to have positive effects on both cognition and neuropsychiatric symptoms, including psychosis. Given the possibility of sensitivity reactions, caution should be used in treating these patients with antipsychotic medications, particularly quetiapine and clozapine. For the patient described earlier, the follow-up discussion focused initially on making another attempt to modify his anti-Parkinsonian medications. The options included, again, decreasing the dopamine agonist dosage, but also increasing the L-DOPA dosage, or adding a COMT inhibitor, an MAO inhibitor, or a mantidine. Each of these choices might lead to either a worsening of Parkinsonism or an increase in psychotic symptoms. Hence, the focus shifted to adding an antipsychotic medication. Consideration was given to restarting quetiapine at a lower dosage and titrating upward very slowly, but the severity of the psychosis and uncertainty about the efficacy of quetiapine in this situation led the physician to recommend clozapine. The adverse event profile, the need for ongoing blood monitoring, and the overall risk-benefit ratio were reviewed with the patient and his spouse, and together they agreed to a clozapine trial. After the necessary baseline lab test and registration process, the patient was started on 12.5 milligrams of clozapine at bedtime. The dosage was increased at two-week intervals, and at a dosage of 37.5 milligrams, the patient's psychotic symptoms declined markedly. Several months later, at the same dose, his only ongoing perceptual disturbance was the rare occurrence of fleeting visual hallucinations. The patient tolerated clozapine well. The only side effects were mild increases in drooling and constipation, which were tolerable. Now, we'll turn to the findings reported by Patricia Dietz and colleagues in clinically identified maternal depression before, during, and after pregnancies ending in live births. More than 4,000 women enrolled in a health maintenance organization over four years gave birth and had records available for the entire period. Their medical records were used to identify depression diagnoses and treatments during three equal periods, the nine months before pregnancy, pregnancy itself, and the nine months after delivery. The percentage of these women identified as having depression before pregnancy was 9%. During pregnancy, the rate was 7%, but it rose again after delivery to 10%. These rates were statistically different from each other. The data also confirmed previous findings that many women who experienced depression during pregnancy or the postpartum period 
have a history of earlier depression. Of the women in this study who were depressed after childbirth, 54% were also identified as depressed either before or during pregnancy. Of those with depression during the 39 weeks before pregnancy, 56% were also identified with depression during pregnancy. Over the entire study period, the women most likely to be identified as depressed were white, were unmarried, had three or more children before this pregnancy, smoked cigarettes during pregnancy, and had health coverage through Medicaid. Taken together, however, none of these risk factors was strong enough to support focusing on it to identify pregnancy-related depression. One possible factor in postpartum depression is the stress of childbirth and caring for a newborn. Alternatively, the higher prevalence of depression observed after childbirth could reflect detection differences. Clinicians may be more likely to identify and treat depression before pregnancy and in the postpartum than during pregnancy. Antidepressants were the most common form of treatment, and two-thirds of the women identified as depressed during pregnancy were dispensed antidepressants, the majority of which were SSRIs. These data were collected before the publicity about cardiovascular malformations and persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. It's possible that these recent findings have affected current use of SSRIs during pregnancy. The potential risk of SSRIs must be balanced against the risk of a relapse into depression. Women who maintain their antidepressant medications throughout pregnancy are less likely to relapse compared with women who discontinue their medication. This study was limited to clinically identified cases of depression, and it likely underestimates the true prevalence of depression in this population. The importance of previous history may be understated in this study because it was examined only within 39 weeks before the pregnancy. The study design required that women be enrolled 39 weeks before and after pregnancy. Therefore, women covered by Medicaid were more likely to be excluded from the study group because their coverage ended 60 days after delivery. These women also were more likely to be diagnosed with depression. Thus, the findings were limited to women who had stable insurance coverage and who were potentially less likely to be at risk for depression. Now we'll turn to the articles on genetic and environmental components of suicide and depression. The first is by Matthew Keller and colleagues. Their analysis is based on the Mid-Atlantic Twin Registry and is presented in Association of Different Adverse Life Events with Distinct Patterns of Depressive Symptoms. Longitudinal data came from twins in female-female, male-male, and male-female twin pairs. Each individual participated in at least two personal interviews. The study is based on those who experienced a dysphoric episode in the 12 months preceding any interview. The interviews assessed the symptoms included in Criterion A for the DSM-3R diagnosis of major depression. Criterion A contains nine symptoms, but one of these was assessed as four separate items, insomnia, hypersomnia, appetite or weight gain, and appetite or weight loss. A dysphoric episode was defined as the co-occurrence of two or more of these symptoms over the last year and lasting at least five days. This level of depressive symptoms has been shown to be associated with substantial psychosocial and role impairment. For each dysphoric episode, the participant responded to the following question. During this period, did something happen to make you feel that way, or did the feeling just come on you out of the blue? If the participant could think of a cause, he or she was asked to describe it. The responses were collapsed into nine categories. Death of a loved one, romantic loss, failure, chronic stress, health, conflict, scare, other, or nothing. More than 4,800 participants had had dysphoric episodes. The depressive symptoms consistently differed depending on the category of adverse life events. When the depressive symptoms followed the death of a loved one, the participants reported more sadness, anhedonia, and appetite loss, but less hypersomnia and guilt. 
the reaction following a romantic breakup was similar. When symptoms followed chronic stress and, to a lesser degree, failure, participants reported greater fatigue, hypersomnia, and appetite gain, but less sadness, anhedonia, or appetite loss. Among the participants who indicated that nothing caused their depressive episodes, the prominent symptoms were appetite gain, fatigue, psychomotor retardation, and hypersomnia. Thoughts of self-harm were elevated for this life event category in the people who experienced only one dysphoric episode or who experienced multiple episodes caused by the same category of event. Thoughts of self-harm were not more prevalent among those who experienced two or more dysphoric episodes caused by two or more categories of events. This finding suggests that people who state that the dysphoria had no precipitating cause are also more likely to contemplate harming themselves. The overall symptom patterns were similar among the participants who had only one dysphoric episode or one type of life event and those who had multiple episodes caused by multiple events. This makes it highly unlikely that the findings were due to chance. Furthermore, the results were not driven by subthreshold depression because similar symptom patterns were found among participants who met the full criteria for major depression. The results also were not due to gender, age, or current depression level. The depressive syndrome appears to be flexible and environmentally responsive. This flexibility argues against reductive models that suggest neural and molecular levels are the only ones at which we will find true explanations for the phenomenon of clinical depression. The finding that study participants without identified adverse life events were more likely to report thoughts of self-harm suggests that other causes might be more influential in determining suicidality. One possibility is genetic predisposition, which was the focus of the investigation by Gonzalo Laje and colleagues. The results are presented in the article, Genetic Markers of Suicidal Ideation Emerging During Citalopram Treatment of Major Depression. The data are from the STAR-D study. STAR-D stands for Sequenced Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression. The study was designed to determine what options should be considered in successive steps for depressed outpatients who do not benefit adequately from an initial course of an antidepressant. Since the introduction of SSRI antidepressants in the 1980s, there has been controversy over whether they can trigger suicidal thoughts or behavior. However, treatment-emergent suicidal ideation and behavior are infrequent, and the highest risk seems to be within a few weeks after initiation of treatment or dose adjustment. The STAR-D study provided a unique opportunity to ascertain treatment-emergent suicidal ideation prospectively in a large cohort of patients treated with the SSRI citalopram and to test whether specific genetic markers can identify patients who have an increased risk. DNA samples were collected from more than 1,900 participants. Suicidal ideation was assessed by the patient's self-report on the item for thoughts of death or suicide on the 16-item Quick Inventory of Depressive Symptomatology. Patients who scored zero before taking citalopram but scored one, two, or three at least once during treatment were categorized as having treatment-emergent suicidal ideation. A comparison group consisted of those who scored zero throughout treatment. 68 genes were chosen for study. Genes were selected to sample five broad signaling pathways of potential importance in antidepressant effects, serotonin, glutamate, dopamine, norepinephrine, and neurotrophins. Selected genes and other pathways were also examined. A total of 768 single nucleotide polymorphisms were selected. Two of the genetic markers produced significant evidence of association. One was in the GRIC2 gene, and the other was in GRIA3. Both genes encode ionotropic glutamate receptors. The highest odds of suicidal thoughts were for patients who had both of the identified markers. 
of the two participants who attempted suicide while undergoing treatment in the STAR-D study, one provided DNA and was found to have both of the high-risk alleles, although he consistently denied having suicidal thoughts. The location of the markers within genes that encode ionotropic glutamate receptors is consistent with prior evidence that antidepressants affect glutamate signaling. However, the identified markers do not appear to be related to a general tendency toward suicide, but rather to suicidal thoughts specifically emerging during antidepressant treatment. Neither of these genes appears to have been previously associated with suicidal ideation. Also, there was no difference in allele or genotype frequency at either marker in participants who had a history of suicidality at their initial visit before the start of treatment. There were also non-genetic differences between the patients who developed suicidal thoughts during treatment and the comparison patients. Those with suicidal ideation received a higher maximum citalopram dose and were less likely to go into remission. The suicidal thoughts developed relatively early in treatment. 69% of those who experienced this effect did so within about 21 days. On the other hand, by the end of citalopram treatment, nearly half of the cases had resolved. None of these patients was known to have attempted suicide. Now we'll turn to the treatment trial for bipolar disorder in adolescents. Mauricio Towen and colleagues discussed their study in the article Olanzapine versus Placebo in the Treatment of Adolescents with Bipolar Mania. The double-blind portion of the study lasted only three weeks and was followed by 26 weeks of open-label treatment with olanzapine. The authors report only the results of the double-blind treatment. The participants were 161 adolescents with acute manic or mixed episodes of bipolar disorder. Two-thirds were randomly assigned to olanzapine and one-third were assigned to placebo. The olanzapine dose was started at either 2.5 or 5 milligrams per day and was increased at the investigator's discretion. Provided that no problems with tolerability became apparent, the dose was increased to at least 10 milligrams by week one and then to as much as 20 milligrams. The patients receiving olanzapine were more than twice as likely to experience remission of mania as were the patients in the placebo group. The adolescents taking olanzapine also had significantly greater improvements in nearly all scores for symptoms, illness severity, hyperactivity and impulsivity, and aggression. On the other hand, they also had more adverse events, including greater effects on weight and prolactin than are observed in adults. The Towen article is discussed by John McClellan in his editorial, Olanzapine and Pediatric Bipolar Disorder, Evidence for Efficacy, and Safety Concerns. He states that the study by Towen and colleagues is the first adequately powered, controlled trial of a second-generation antipsychotic agent for the treatment of bipolar disorder in adolescents. Also, olanzapine was associated with a significantly greater reduction in scores on the Young Mania rating scale, a higher response rate, and a higher rate of symptom remission. However, a weight gain of 7% or more occurred in 42% of the subjects receiving active medication versus only 2% of those receiving placebo. Olanzapine also was associated with significant elevations of fasting glucose, lipids, hepatic enzymes, prolactin, and uric acid. Clinically abnormal elevations of aspartate transaminase and alanine transaminase also occurred in a substantial portion of olanzapine-treated subjects. These findings raise questions as to whether olanzapine should be used as a first-line agent in juveniles. Among the second-generation antipsychotics, olanzapine and clozapine are associated with the greatest degree of weight gain and metabolic complications in adults. Unfortunately, 
youth receiving second-generation antipsychotics appear to be at greater risk for metabolic complications, with olanzapine and clozapine proffering the greatest risk. The slope of the weight gain curve in the Toen study is particularly worrisome. The adolescents assigned to olanzapine in this study gained an average of 3.7 kilograms in only three weeks. Unfortunately, the impact on metabolic parameters is not likely to subside with continued treatment. The data as presented arguably suggest that the metabolic adverse events outweigh the benefits. Longer exposure to olanzapine appears contraindicated, at least for those subjects demonstrating substantial weight gain or significant elevations in glucose or lipids. This study had a six-month open-label extension phase, and therefore more data regarding the long-term safety of olanzapine in this sample should be forthcoming. What are the implications for clinical care? This study is an important step toward developing an evidence-based treatment approach for pediatric bipolar disorder. Essentially, current practice for this condition is mostly off-label or justified based solely on the adult literature. There is a modicum of empirical support for lithium, valproate, and quetiapine. The only other published, adequately-powered, randomized control medication trial for juvenile mania found that oxcarbazepine was not more efficacious than placebo. The widespread use of second-generation antipsychotics in youth necessitates a thorough vetting of their effectiveness and tolerability in well-designed clinical trials. This study provides essential information that as a first step potentially supports the efficacy of second-generation antipsychotics as a class, while also confirming the need to closely monitor metabolic parameters in youth being treated with these agents. The substantial weight gain associated with olanzapine perhaps suggests a preference to treat first with a more weight-neutral agent. A final caveat is the recognition that pediatric bipolar disorder is characterized by enormous clinical and etiologic heterogeneity. Group differences in rates of response or side effects have limited utility in clinical practice, especially when addressing complex variable syndromes often associated with diagnostic comorbidity and complicated psychosocial factors. The results of the Toen study highlight the need for markers to better predict which individuals will respond and which are more vulnerable to untoward consequences, including weight gain. Over the next generation, intervention research must focus on the identification of neurobiological or pharmacogenomic mechanisms underlying psychopathology, treatment response, and the propensity toward adverse events. Now we'll turn to the article on psychodynamic treatment by Sidney Blatt and colleagues, Two Primary Configurations of Psychopathology and Change in Thought Disorder in Long-Term Intensive Inpatient Treatment of Seriously Disturbed Young Adults. Relatedness and self-definition are central dimensions in personality development. Severe disruption of the normal developmental process may result in a distorted, one-sided preoccupation with one of these dimensions at the expense of the other. An intense focus on establishing and maintaining interpersonal relatedness is expressed in preoccupations with experiences of merger, closeness, trust, caring, intimacy, and sexuality. This pattern is associated with psychopathologies of an anaclytic configuration, including undifferentiated schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder. Preoccupation with establishing and maintaining a viable sense of self is expressed by feeling separate, autonomous, independent, and worthwhile. It is associated with psychopathologies of an introjective configuration, including paranoid schizophrenia and narcissistic personality disorder. These two patient types express therapeutic change along different dimensions in long-term intensive psychodynamic inpatient treatment. In an earlier study, 
it was expected that thought disorder would diminish primarily in interjective patients because of their ideational orientation. However, this measure significantly declined only for anaclytic patients. The current study explored this finding by deconstructing the composite thought disorder measure into its components. Three major types of thought disorder can be differentiated according to the degree of boundary disturbance. Boundary differentiations include the capacity to differentiate between independent objects, including self and non-self, and between the actual object and the mental or verbal representation, that is, between outside and inside. Difficulties in maintaining these boundary differentiations are expressed in thought disorder responses to the Rorschach test. These fall into three types, contaminations, confabulations, and fabulized combinations. Contaminations are considered pathognomonic of schizophrenia. They express an inability to establish and maintain a fundamental boundary between independent objects, events, or thoughts. For instance, shapes perceived as a hand and a rabbit's head on a Rorschach card merge and are described as a rabbit's hand. Confabulations express an inability to maintain a boundary between inside and outside, between what is perceived and what one thinks or feels about the perception. Confabulations are characterized by extensive, arbitrary ideational or effective elaborations that seriously distort an accurate perception. For instance, part of a Rorschach card is described as two fetuses representing good and evil, heaven and hell. Confabulations occur in seriously disturbed borderline patients. Fabulized combinations are the least serious of the three thought disorders. These reflect an attribution of arbitrary relationships between independent objects because of spatial or temporal contiguity. For instance, the patient may report two elephants dancing on a butterfly. Fabulized combinations occur primarily in more organized borderline and depressed outpatients, often those with paranoid features. The study was based on clinical data for 90 seriously disturbed, treatment-resistant young adults between the ages of 18 and 29. All of them were receiving long-term, psychoanalytically-oriented, intensive inpatient treatment. 42 patients were rated as anaclinic and 48 as interjective. Approximately 30% had psychotic diagnoses, 60% were diagnosed as having severe personality disorder, and 10% had severe depression. The patient's Rorschach responses were analyzed early in treatment and again at mid-treatment after an average of 15 months. One judge rated all of the Rorschach protocols, but they were presented in random order, and the judge did not have information about the patients or when each test was performed. The results indicated significant declines in thought disorder for both the anaclytic and interjective patients, but their patterns of change were the opposite of each other. The anaclytic patients had declines in confabulations and contaminations, but no significant change in fabulized combinations. The interjective patients had a decline in fabulized combinations, but no significant change in the other two thought disorders. However, their reduction in fabulized combinations was significantly greater than the reductions in the other two measures among the anaclytic patients. The two groups exhibited no significant difference in types of thought disorder at baseline, but they expressed therapeutic progress in different ways. The change in anaclytic patients involved a reduction in primitive forms of relatedness. Change in the interjective patients involved a reduction of referential thinking. This differential response demonstrates the role of the anaclytic interjective dimension in the choice of treatment and outcome measures. It also verifies that the distinction is relevant to severely disturbed patients. An editorial by John Oldham, Psychodynamic Psychotherapy for Personality Disorders, reviews the evidence base for the efficacy of this treatment. He reports that there has been progress, 
interest in rigorous, randomized controlled trials of psychotherapy for patients with personality disorders has grown in the research community, and NIH funding for this work has increased. A meta-analysis of studies on psychodynamic treatment and cognitive behavior therapy indicated that both are effective treatments for personality disorders. However, only 14 psychodynamic studies were found that used adequate methodology for inclusion. Of these, three were randomized controlled trials. Fortunately, randomized controlled trials of long-term psychodynamic treatment are being carried out. Numerous challenges remain. The number of subjects in each study is often small, intent-to-treat analyses are seldom reported, and head-to-head studies are rare. There is still much to learn about which treatment is best for which patient, what length of treatment is best, what level of care is best, what outcomes should be measured, and how durable the treatment gains are. And answers to these questions cannot rely solely on randomized controlled trials, but must include real-world collaborative effectiveness studies, such as the STAR-D trials for depression. It has been suggested that as a measure of therapeutic change, symptom remission is secondary to, and dependent on, more basic changes in personality structure. This argument dovetails with recent findings from naturalistic longitudinal studies of personality disorders. DSM-4 defines personality disorders as enduring and stable over time, but a collaborative longitudinal study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health demonstrated that more than half of the personality disorders studied showed remission within the first two years of follow-up. The researchers suggested that personality disorders be reconceptualized as hybrids of stable personality traits and dysfunctional behaviors that fluctuate over time. For example, the most stable criteria for borderline personality disorder were effective instability and inappropriate intense anger. The least stable were frantic efforts to avoid abandonment and self-injury. A conference in 2006 considered borderline personality disorder from the point of view of core, heritable, and phenotypes, for instance, affective instability and impulsive aggression. Such phenotypes would clarify the stable trait structure of the disorder and would differentiate core traits from symptomatic behavior. Such efforts are already contributing to the early phase of rethinking how personality disorders are defined and classified in DSM-5. The careful study by Blatt and colleagues is welcome. If this and other dimensional systems allow us to identify core pathological traits that guide treatment selection and serve as meaningful measures of change, they may be important steps. The importance of unpacking the current defining criteria for the personality disorders, particularly to differentiate traits from symptoms, is now widely recognized. Meanwhile, neuroscientists are teaching us about the biological nature of psychotherapy because it clearly represents a particular form of learning and memory. Kendall and co-workers recently stated, it is now clear that psychotherapy can induce robust changes in brain function that are detectable with neuroimaging. They also claim that several lines of evidence point to an important future role for neuroimaging in evaluating the mechanisms and outcome of psychotherapy. Because it is also clear that psychotherapy is a core evidence-based treatment for at least some of the personality disorders, our hope for the future lies within partnerships between the psychotherapy researcher and the neuroscientist to better predict what treatment works for which patients on the basis of brain imaging, molecular neurobiology, genomics, core psychological traits, and other critical factors. This concludes the audio highlights of the October issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. We invite you to refer to the online issue at ajp.psychiatryonline.org for the full text of these and other articles. Thank you.